So thanks for coming to the seminar today. Um, it's my pleasure to have Dr. Greg Penner on campus. Um, Greg is an associate professor from the University of Saskatchewan. Um, he's a chair, I don't remember the name of the chair, but he's holds the chair in the department. Um, I first met Greg at the Florida Nutrition Conference. Actually, that's the first time I saw Greg. He won the Young Researcher Award at ASAS. That's been several years ago that you did that. And um, I went to his presentation and came out really impressed. And then just through being on similar programs um, over the years, we've kind of gotten to know each other, went to Brazil together. Uh, Flavio had us both down um, at a conference a, year, a little over a year ago um, and really got to spend some time together. And it just became obvious that there's a lot of mutual interest and um, complementary expertise. Um, so our program is very applied uh, in nature, as is Greg's. Um, but Greg bridges, I don't really want to call it a gap, but bridges uh, applied questions with basic physiology. Um, and I think does a very nice job of that, especially dealing and, and where my interest in what he does has really peaked um, is in dealing with integrity of the rumen epithelial tissue and using that as an acidosis modeler to, to further our understanding of BFA absorption, acidosis, and then liver abscesses, which is something that's been heavy on our minds um, as pressure on antibiotic use has increased. So that was the, the intent um, to kind of pursue that. Greg has spent time with several faculty, um, some of whom are in the room, um, spoke at the Husker Nutrition Conference last week, Friday, um, and then yesterday went to the, never go to a cold football game with a Canadian, uh, because, you know, even if you want to leave, they're not going to. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was brisk to Greg, and I was freezing out there. Uh, but we had, we've had a really good time uh, over the past week. Um, kind of culminates today in the departmental seminar, and he's going to teach class for me again this afternoon. Um, and, and just think there's all kinds of opportunities for collaboration and integration. Uh, maybe a few more students like Lauren who had Greg as an instructor as an undergrad. So, really pleased to have you with us, Greg, and look forward to your presentation. Thank you, Jim, and thank you to everyone. I sure enjoyed my stay so far. I've loved interacting with all the students and all the faculty and certainly seeing the facilities. Before I get into the kind of the meat of the presentation, I want to show you kind of where I come from. And actually there's four of us in this room that all at some point of their program um, were training in Saskatoon through our animal science department. So it's good to see that there is Saskatchewan penetration into the net Nebraska training environment. So if you look at Google Earth, boreal forest transition, north of that is the Canadian Shield, and we're about 700 kilometers south of that. So you don't get much further north uh, in Canada than where our home institute is located in Saskatoon. Obviously, hopefully you guys know your U.S. geography better than I do, but we're somewhere down here, so it's a fair ways to travel, uh, but at least on a longitude standpoint, we're not that, that different. University of Saskatchewan is a fairly small university, uh, around 18,000 undergrad students, 1,500 of them in agriculture, 
And this is our abbreviation for animal poultry science, so about 430 undergrads uh, within our program through all four years. So that's not a single year, so we're fairly small. 3,300 uh, graduate students in our university, 270 in agriculture, and 65 of them in animal and poultry science. So we're a small department, small college. We occupy about 7% of the university faculty numbers, but we generate 25 to 50% of the research revenue and research productivity. So we're a small but proud college. This is the College of Agriculture at the U of S and the university was founded around agriculture and it is still the most uh, preeminent building within our university campus. Even our best students look up to us. <laughs> so. We have a number of resources. So we have a national research facility, Canadian Feed Research Center, located about an hour outside of campus, full uh, pilot scale line, as well as an industrial scale line. We lease out the industrial scale line to Cargill, but we have an agreement where we can take uh, control over that mill and use it for uh, production purposes for our research. We have uh, the Rainer Dairy Research and Teaching Facility, a 110 cow dairy has a robotic milking system, it has a parlor milking system, and a tie stall milking system. And all three, three of those integrate for the same data management. Uh, so we have a pretty extensive research capability on the dairy side. This is located about five minutes walking from our building. And then we just established the Livestock and Forage Center of Excellence. It's a $38 million investment from an infrastructure standpoint. Uh, it's supposed to cover the gamut between soil all the way to uh, cattle. We don't have a meat science department. That's one of our, well, we do, but we don't have an active meat science group. Uh, so that's one of our limitations. But if you look at the facility, we're looking at doubling our research capability. So Gail and I'm quite impressed, uh, the feedlots group, by the number of pens and the amount of replications you can impose. We think this is great because we're going to about a 1,500 head capacity. Uh, we also have uh, two different cow herds, 300 head, that'll be located directly across the road from our intensive feeding operation. Uh, and then we have the veterinary research farm, which is a bit smaller, but only about 10 minutes away from our major infrastructure. So pretty exciting uh, things happening in Saskatchewan. This is our new facility. So we have large 200 head commercial pens that we can divide to be four 100 head pens to increase replications. 40, uh, 44 small pens, 15 head pens, and then we have a receiving yard and we have a brand new metabolism barn uh, within this facility. So hopefully the rest of my career is done largely with this facility. Doesn't show we have micromixing capabilities. So we have a UFA micromixer so that we can start adding, um, I guess, small inclusion products uh, at the feed mixing side. And then we have a commodity base uh, located in it's my metabolism barn. Unfortunately, it looks like this today. They're just finishing it off. Hopefully by the time I'm home, I can put cattle in there, uh, but 24 head capability, total track collections, infusion capability. Our goal is to move disappointed catheters. And that's kind of our, our interest uh, in understanding animal metabolism. Cow-calf facilities just on the other side of the road, so the feedlots kind of down over on this side. Cow-calf facility, again, we're about 300 cows, so the idea is to move like you've done here, more towards systems types uh, of approaches. 
but also to have uh, significant forest development, crop breeding, uh, and cow-calf management uh, capability. The other thing I want to mention is we are hiring. Uh, so John McKinnon is a very well-established research chair uh, within our department. Uh, he has reached that age where he said, I no longer want to come to work um, because I have to. So he is retired and we're hiring at the assistant professor level. Emphasis is as broad as we could make it. It's anything related to sustainable management of the wean calf. So we don't really care what the specific expertise are. If you know of people or you yourself are interested, come talk to me uh, and I can let you know more information. So last slide before I get into the research. This is, uh, I guess, the benefit and the problem of my program. These are students that I directly uh, mentor or advise. Uh, and the benefit is we have a large group. We have a very good funding system in Canada. The challenge is at times my program is too diverse and, and you might see that, but I have a plan on, on how we create or maintain a core and then expand out. I'm not gonna go through all of them, but if you look at the general core, gastrointestinal physiology is the core bubble. And then I interact with any production system that might have an influence back on gastrointestinal physiology. So that could be dairy management, it can be small ruminant management, it can be the cow-calf sector, or it can be feedlot production. And we work in all of those production fields. So it's, it's interesting to sit with Paul, and Paul thinks I'm a dairy researcher, talk with Jim, and Jim thinks I'm a beef researcher, and I think I'm a ruminant nutrition and physiologist. So I hope that I can sell most of my uh, concepts to a broad ruminant production field. So kind of the focus of my research is looking at uh, what the gastrointestinal tract does and, and how it accomplishes those outcomes. I mentioned this yesterday in class, but these are how I kind of classify essential functions of the gastrointestinal tract. So more from a classical standpoint, we would say it's an absorptive organ, promoting feed digestion by microbes, regulating luminal pH, promoting nutrient absorption, as well as providing a way to recycle urea. And so that's been well accepted, and I think that would be classical ruminant nutrition. The last two are probably more debatable and, and newer advancements. So barrier function of that tissue and how that tissue regulates what gets to cross it. So promoting absorption, but preventing non-desired molecules from crossing that tissue uh, is a very important factor. And so because of that, it functions as the first arm of the immune response. And there's a number of ways it does that through intrinsic, extrinsic, uh, and immunological mechanisms. We're not gonna go into the detail of that, but that is a key principle that you'll see in the studies coming up. Communicative function. And so we know there's crosstalk between the host and the microbiota. And something we're really excited about is luminal nutrient sensing and how those sensing mechanisms signal broader effects on the host. So looking at functional nutrients and how you can include something at 0.3% of dry matter, like butyrate, that has a contribution that is far more than its caloric value. And this is an area where we're actively pursuing. So to get back to the issue, I'm gonna to talk today about low feed intake. And in reality, I think low feed intake is an unrecognized challenge. And I'm gonna give you a couple production scenarios that I hope cement the concept of low feed intake as a model to evaluate gastrointestinal function. 
This was work we did with 14 newborn Holstein calves. We transported them to the U of S on day one of age. We weaned them on day 42 after imposing a seven day step down program of milk replacer. So this would be a common nutritional management practice that we would see in the dairy industry in uh, Saskatchewan. We had two groups. We had our group that never got weaned as our control. And then we had our group that was weaned. What you can see here is milk replacer intake. So the groups were essentially equivalent until five weeks of age, at which time we started imposing that step uh, down milk replacer program. And so you can see milk replacer intake decreased for week six. There is no milk replacer intake on week seven for that group because we artificially need them. If you look at starter intake, again, this is just classical data, fits well with the older literature. When you take away milk, starter intake goes up, offset that caloric uh, difference. So we saw exactly what we had expected. The challenge is when we did this, we saw the release of chromium EDTA in the urine dramatically increase. And I'm going to bring this model up in a few slides. We're using chromium EDTA as an indicator of paracellular permeability. So the ability of molecules to cross the gut by moving between cells. So we orally dose chromium EDTA, and then we measure the urine. So we have total urine output and urinary chromium EDTA. And the principle is the more chromium EDTA that appears in the urine, the more permeable that gastrointestinal tract is. So from that, we saw a couple of really interesting uh, outcomes in this study. First of all, there's a very clear age-dependent response where the gastrointestinal tract tightens. So it becomes less permeable. And this is probably pretty important if you think of the microbiota establishing a core community as that calf ages and the necessary need to restrict movement of molecules across that gastrointestinal tract. The other aspect we saw was complete disruption of that tightening when we weaned those calves. And this was not an aggressive weaning protocol. This is an industry standard weaning protocol. But we basically reverted permeability back to that early stage of life. So it tells us a couple things. One is the calf is working hard to try to uh, improve integrity of the gastrointestinal tract. And we have an influence as managers of those animals where what we can perceive based on concentrate intake as a reasonable weaning approach doesn't seem to be a reasonable approach when we look at other indicators like permeability. So that calf may be faced with other challenges that we aren't measuring. Okay. So that's a dairy calf model. This is the model for transition dairy cattle. Of course, I'm self-promoting here, so I'm showing data from my masters where we had cattle that were going through a controlled, an NRC-derived control uh, prefartum program, or the thought at that time, a step-up program where we increased fermentability of the diet prior to parturition. What I want to highlight is on average, those cows reduced dry matter intake by 30% relative to the day of calving. And if you look at the literature, that shouldn't be that surprising. Rick Grummer's group has shown that cattle on average decreased dry matter intake by about 33% and almost 90% of that occurs in the last week prior to parturition. So we effectively reproduced what we knew, which is good. But what I want to highlight is that low feed intake challenge 
has not been thought of as a challenge, right? We all know that we want to reduce that primarily because we don't want to see a reduction in energy intake, right? We won't, don't want to induce negative energy balance, but I'm hoping I'm going to convince you that there's a lot more to that low feed intake than just the reduction in nutrient intake. Receiving feedlot cattle, getting older data, Hutchison and Cole showed within the first week of arrival, cattle are eating somewhere between 0.5 and 1.5% of their body weight in dry matter intake, and it increases dramatically, but relatively slowly as they advance with days on feed in the pen. Okay. We also know those calves went through probably some stage of complete feed withdrawal. This is some real nice data from Germany where they exposed lambs to 48 hours of feed withdrawal and they looked at transport of short chain fatty acids across the rumen and they showed with even with only 48 hours of no feed, the ability of the rumen to absorb those acids was reduced by about 50%. So the point is the gut responds to changes in nutrient supply quite rapidly and quite dramatically. Normally we focus on the promotion effect. So if you feed a higher energy dense diet, you stimulate papillae proliferation, and very few groups actually look at the negative consequence of decreasing energy density or other nutritional challenges. So this is important. They look at complete feed withdrawal. I'm not saying that's not relevant under transportation or marketing scenarios, but it certainly doesn't address this issue that we have early on in the feeding period. It doesn't address the issue we have when animals have metabolic or infectious disease. It doesn't address transitionary cows and it doesn't address calves of meat. So we wanted a model that we thought would be good at representing more broadly uh, the cases we see in industry. So we started out here and this was one of, one of the early experiments we did. 18 cannulated heifers and we exposed them to three treatments. Okay. We're going to talk about a flaw in this experimental design, but I want to show you the highlights first. So the three treatments we imposed were 75%, 50%, or 25% of their ad libitum feed intake. So we measured ad libitum feed intake during baseline. It was a five-day duration, and then we exposed them to five consecutive days of feed restriction at these values. After that, they were allowed to eat ad libitum. There was no dietary changes in this experiment. So they were fed a diet that was 60% forage, half of that grass hay, okay, 30% barley grain, and the pellets high, but most of that is barley grain. So we can say 40% barley grain. This is not a diet that I would assume would be risky, and it's very similar to what we would see in Western Canada for receiving programs. Okay, our measurements for this experiment were at the end of baseline, so at the end of the five days, at the end of feed restriction, the end of the first week of recovery, and the end of the third week of recovery. So recognize it's unequal spacing, but what we were trying to do is look at the impact of feed restriction by comparing it to baseline, and then to evaluate the recovery response after that feed restriction event. So we divided the data up into two fractions so that we could look at the feed restriction event and then look at the recovery event. Okay. So the first thing we observed, and it again should have been common sense, once we decrease dry matter intake, so baseline dry matter intake, and then our imposed feed restriction, we did a good job. It was very close to 25, 50, and 75% of their voluntary intake. 
but it's not that surprising that short chain fatty acid concentration in the rumen decreased in a dose dependent manner. Okay. We decrease fermentable substrate supply, microbes respond by reducing their production. Not that surprising. Mean pH also responded in a dose dependent manner. Okay. So those animals that were restricted to a greater extent had higher pH. And their mean pH was very close to 7. That's getting to be a very high mean pH. And if you want to avoid acidosis, you just feed restrict. Right? They have almost no time below pH 5.5. I also use this to point out, and I think those of you in the lecture, I think I have this slide uh, within that as well. High pH does not mean a positive response. I would argue high pH can be just as negative as low pH. Probably says those cattle aren't easy. So before I get, it, get into the next part, we use a technique quite often called the temporary isolated and washed reticular rumen model. And this is one of the ways that we use to evaluate nutrient absorption across the gastrointestinal tract in vivo. Okay. So in this model, you can see our happy steers fit with a rumen cannula. We are going to evacuate all the rumen contents. Once they're evacuated, we're going to put in a prepared buffer that's heated to 39 degrees and is isotonic and has short chain fatty acids to make sure we're not starving the animal during this washing process. So we'll wash the rumen and the reticulum out five to six times. It is very clean after these washings. After that, we put an occluding device into the omasal orifice. So it's basically a Foley catheter that we insert into the omasal orifice. We pass a tube through the nostril and it comes out the esophagus. We go grab that and then we attach an occluding device with a balloon. So we put the occluding device in the esophagus, we inflate the balloon, so saliva produced cannot enter the rumen. Okay, we aspirate that saliva out into a clutch and jug behind the animal or beside the animal. So now we have saliva production. We also have rates of nutrient transport and we don't have to worry about passive rate because nothing comes in and nothing goes out unless it crosses the rumen epithelium. And so it's a pretty clean model where we don't have to avoid acid rate estimation. We put a sampling tube in, we put a gassing tube so that we're aerating the buffer with uh, CO2 to make sure that we're mixing that digesta. And then we put in a buffer that has a known chemical composition and a known volume. And we use chromium EDTA as a liquid volume marker. So by measuring chromium EDTA concentration, <coughs> we can predict volume based on its dilution or increase in concentration. And by measuring the concentration of other compounds in the buffer, like short-chain fatty acids, we can measure their disappearance. So we can calculate absorption rate as a percentage per hour or absorption rate in millimoles per hour. And okay, because we know the quantity in the rumen. So we use this approach and when we impose speed restriction, it's only a tendency here, but we have another study where we see a significant response. So I'm going to say this is significant. We just didn't have power. We see a reduction in short chain fatty acid absorption across the rumen after being exposed to five days of low feed intake. Okay. It also tended to be dose dependent. So the more you restrict those animals, the greater the reduction in short chain fatty acid absorption. So think about this from a newly weaned cat perspective that has gone through the marketing system, now enters the feedlot, they have low feed intake, 
Low rates of fermentation, which means energy availability to the animal is low. And then there's a double whammy where nutrient absorption across the gastrointestinal tract is also reduced. And I want to emphasize, because we use the Walsh-Ruman model, all the buffers contain the same amount of short-chain fatty acid. So this isn't because they had a lower short-chain fatty acid concentration in the rumen. This is the capacity response of the rumen epithelium. So it is decreasing capacity. Okay. I mentioned already we use chromium EDTA as a marker for feed digestibility, right? But if you look at that old data, there's about four to five percent that disappears. So you never get a hundred percent recovery. And so I looked at that as an opportunity and said, well, if it's disappearing, where is it going? Did some reading on the poultry side and find out they use chromium EDTA a lot for barrier function. Why don't we do it in ruminants? It's a non-fermentable substrate. It's complex. It's pretty stable. We know chromium EDTA crosses the gut via paracellular processes. So if we use chromium EDTA and we measure its recovery in urine, can we use that as a way to assess barrier function in the gastrointestinal tract? So we validated this model quite a few years ago now, showed that within 48 hours, we had 99% of the chromium EDTA recovered in urine that would be excreted. So we can infuse chromium EDTA, measure urine for the next 48 hours, and based on the amount of chromium EDTA excreted, we can provide an indication of total tract barrier function. What happened when we imposed low feed intake? Those animals that were exposed to very severe feed intake restrictions had increased chromium EDTA appearance in the urine. Okay. So restricting to 25% of their voluntary dry matter intake increased permeability of the gastrointestinal tract. Probably not what we want to happen in these animals that are already challenged from a number of other uh, ways. Okay, so we can see the negative impact of a challenge. Hopefully, if we done our, have done our job, those animals survive and need to recover. And if you look in the literature, there's a big gap in terms of understanding recovery of the animal after exposure to challenges. So we looked at the recovery for dry matter intake, and you can see, again, we have a dose-dependent response where those animals that were restricted to a greater extent required more time to return to adlibium intake, allowing them to consume the same diet, but at adlibitum intakes, induced ruminal acidosis. So even a diet that was 60% forage, just allowing them to increase intake after a period of feed restriction caused mean pH to drop for the 25% group all the way down to 5.9. That's a pretty low mean pH on a high forage-based diet. If you want to look at that in another way, we can see that the amount of time spent below pH 5.5 uh, was about six hours per day, or sorry, four hours per day. So a significant amount of time where pH is reduced. I don't show the data uh, on the same slide, but remember this was not because of a binge feeding event. These 25% heifers did not overeat. They still ate less than the others, but pH was lower. So the argument can't be made that they just compensated by eating more. No, they still ate less, but rumen pH was lower. And we think it's lower because they had lower rates of short-chain fatty acid absorption at the point of feed restriction, and they required more time to recover their rates of short-chain fatty acid absorption during recovery. 
So we've had an impact that doesn't just cause effects at the time of the challenge, but has sustained effects that they need to cope with as they're recovering and we're trying to adapt them to new situations. In terms of total tract barrier function, exactly the same response we saw before, only those animals that were restricted to 25% still had elevated chromium EDTA excretion there. Okay, so very severe challenges are required uh, to increase the permeability of the gastrointestinal tract. So the chromium EDTA model is, is a really nice model, but the problem it has is we don't know where in the gastrointestinal tract permeability is actually affected. We put it in orally, or we dose it in the rumen, we measure it in the urine, and it could be anywhere throughout the gastrointestinal tract where that chromium EDTA is, is crossing. And I think that matters if we're going to come up with nutritional strategies to ameliorate the response. Is that a rumen-derived response? Is it a small intestinal-derived response, or is it a large intestinal-derived response? And that matters when we're designing feed products that might actually be able to target the regions of interest. Okay. One of the other approaches we use is an ex vivo tissue culture approach. So the downside is we do have to kill the, the animals for this experiment, but we're able to keep the gut tissue alive outside of the animal for about 14 hours. And we can prove viability through the use of secondary messengers and show that we get an electrophysiological response. So I'm just showing rumen tissue here. We'll cut it into slices. We'll peel the submucosa. We'll mount it between two halves of the oozing chamber. And then we incubate it in the lab, and we have buffer solutions that are heated and oxygenated, supplying nutrients to that tissue. And the tissue acts as a barrier between the blood-facing side and the rumen-facing side. So we can modulate the composition of the buffers so that it represents the rumen and represents the blood. And through the use of radio-labeled substrates or fluorescent markers, we can look at the movement of those molecules across the gut. Okay. And so we did that and we thought, first of all, I don't want to spend my whole career working on the rumen with rumen acidosis and then find out it's a hindgut problem. And be real proud of retirement that I spent millions of dollars looking at the rumen and didn't solve the problem. So the first step I thought we needed to do is characterize regional differences in barrier function across the gastrointestinal tract and ruminants. So we presented this data in Australia and we showed the movement of mannitol across that tissue, in this case, the greater the movement, the more permeable that tissue is, or that's our assumption. And we can see that the foregut is pretty low in terms of permeability. Small intestine, we see a bit of a spike, and then it decreases as we move throughout the large intestine. So this is under a non-challenged system, and we thought, well, this is really interesting data. It actually might suggest that we're looking at the wrong region if we just focus on the rumen. So I had a grad student that came on board and she was interested in doing this type of work. And I said, okay, let's separate the response. We're gonna look at ruminal acidosis as one challenge model and look at low feed intake as another challenge model. And we're gonna compare that back to control. So fairly similar diet, 50% uh, forage, 50% concentrate, okay. This was our experimental approach. We had an adaptation period followed by five days of uh, dry matter intake, body, or body weight measurement and pH. Same adaptation treatment or period for all treatments. We restricted feed to 25% of their voluntary intake, overdosed them with grain, 
and then one day after kill the animals and collect the tissue or we expose them to low feed intake so we have the same adaptation five days of feed restriction down to 25% of their voluntary intake. What did we see? Well, in terms of body weight, and this is live body weight, Jim and I were arguing the other yesterday, I guess, about body weight. This is one case where I'm going to say live body weight does matter. Okay, maybe it's all shrink, but it still matters. Uh, body weight was reduced with the low feed intake significantly relative to the control. Dry matter intake was reduced in both cases. So inducing ruminal acidosis caused those animals to go off feed. That was their physiological response. And so they dropped their, their feed intake. We looked at luminal pH across the gastrointestinal tract. And we can see ruminal acidosis induced low pH in the rumen. So we did our job of imposing the model. But we also saw reductions in the cecum, the proximal colon, and a tendency for a reduction in the distal colon. So again, additional evidence where we might not be looking at the right region if we're just focusing at the rumen. And for low feed intake, we can see we had an increase in pH in the reticular rumen, and we also had an increased pH in the proximal colon. So this has led us to think that the colon is a, a pretty important region when we're looking at responses to nutritional challenges. We also characterize short-chain fatty acid concentration throughout the gastrointestinal tract. Okay, and we can see in response, probably due to reduced dry matter intake, we see reductions in short-chain fatty acid concentration in the rumen. We don't see much occurring in the duodenum. That's not surprising. There's not that much microbial activity and very little of the VFA should flow out of the rumen or omasum and actually reach uh, the intestine. So most of this we think is endogenous production or new production by the microbes, but we do uh, see very little changes occurring in short-chain fatty acid concentration once we get outside of the rumen uh, itself. That said, imposing feed restriction changes papillae surface area. So this is rumen epithelial surface area, and we can see reductions in length, width, perimeter, and surface area. Remember, this is a five-day feed restriction, and we already have significant reductions in the absorptive surface area exposed. We also saw a reduction in width with rumen acidosis, which again would be pretty consistent uh, given previous models. Our real interest in this experiment was to say, how does permeability change across the gastrointestinal tract okay, when we uh, impose these challenges? Now we're looking at a different marker. We're using inulin. This is a very large molecule. It's actually hard to characterize how large it is because it's heterogeneous but we see a pretty consistent trend. I didn't show the data from the previous experiment where for large molecules, the rumen and the omasin seem to have fairly high permeability and it decreases throughout the gastrointestinal tract. The disappointing finding in this experiment was the outcomes were opposite to our hypothesis. We had speculated based on total tract permeability that we would see increased permeability of different regions of the gastrointestinal tract when imposed uh, with low feed intake. You can see error bars are pretty large. That's quite common with this type of approach. But what we saw, if anything, was a reduction in permeability with low feed intake in the hindgut. So this caused us a, a bit of concern. We do have some differences in our model between the in vivo measurements and the ex vivo measurements. First of all, the time is different. We have to do the in vivo measurements first, and then we do the ex vivo measurements because you can't bring them back to life. The other issue is for 
viable tissues to be incubated in using chambers, if they have visible lesions, I cannot mount them. So those would be the areas where we expect to have the greatest permeability, but because we can't maintain tissue viability ex vivo, we have to exclude those tissues from our tissue preparations. So we may be artificially affecting permeability by um, excluding tissues that were visibly damaged. Manitol flux followed the same response, tended to be lower uh, for low feed intake, or was lower for low feed intake uh, in the distal part of the colon. So this still bugged us, why are the ex vivo results and the in vivo results different? We looked at gene expression for uh, genes that are related to tight cell junctions, as well as pro-inflammatory responses. So uh, LTA and LPS receptors, so luminal receptors. And we found that those low feed intake exposed animals had increased expression of these tight cell junction proteins and increased expression uh, of uh, TLR2. Okay. So what do we think this means? We think, again, because the gut is such a rapidly turning over tissue, timing of sampling really matters. And what we're dealing with here is probably a recovery response rather than the induction response. So we think the tissue is actually trying to compromise and react to the increased permeability by stimulating production of tight cell junctions. Okay. Sorry, that was rubinal gene expression. This is duodenal gene expression. So FCAR is related to LPS uh, reception. Okay. And we see again, changes throughout the gastrointestinal tract. Generally, low feed intake increased the response. And then again, when we look at the colon, we see a very similar response. So three regions throughout the gastrointestinal tract, all suggesting increased tight cell junction expression from a transcript level, which to me was, or our conclusion was, the tissue is already trying to adapt or cope with that low feed intake challenge while preventing uh, unintended molecule passage. So that's nice and the beef producers love it when I say, you know what, these are your challenges and they say, Greg, we don't pay you to tell us our problems, we pay you to help us find solutions. And so we started looking at what solutions could we actually use or what tools could we use to try to stabilize or accelerate the recovery of the gastrointestinal tract. There's a lot of work done looking at butyrate and butyrate's role to stimulate gastrointestinal development. So we thought butyrate needs to be in that cocktail. Betaine isn't really looked at a lot from a gut physiology standpoint. It's a methyl donor. It helps regulate osmotic balance. In poultry models, it's been shown to help be protected against coccidia uh, infection challenges. And then antioxidants, more from the feed supply, probably not crossing the gastrointestinal tract, but there is some suggestions that antioxidants in the diet could have beneficial effects on the gastrointestinal tract. So this was kind of a proof of concept study. We said, these are the things we think might help. Let's put them in at doses based on previous studies in isolation, and let's throw it in and see what happens. So we used 32 labs in this experiment. We decided to use a finishing model. So we fed them what we would call a, a standard finishing diet. Again, this seems high, but it's just a mechanism of how our feeding management was. Most of this is barley grain. So we have a diet that's essentially 9% barley silage on a dry matter basis. Our producers use storm rations. So if they expect cattle to go off intake, they will decrease the amount of concentrate in the diet. 
So we wanted to see, is the storm practice beneficial? And can we enhance the storm practice by including our um, functional ingredients within this approach? Similar experimental design that I showed you before, a little bit different. We restricted dry matter intake, in this case for only three days. I was worried about killing the lambs with a five-day feed restriction, coupled with refeeding at a diet that was only 9% barley silage. So we shortened the duration and we reduced the severity down to 50%. Dry matter intake, we have one outlier here and we, we just can't seem to figure out why that's there. But the point is, when you look at the treatment by time interactions, it was actually the storm diets and the storm plus cocktail diets that recovered most rapidly after the challenge. If we look at the flux rate, uh, in this case, this is butyrate uh, flux rate uh, and this is acetate flux rate. We can see tendencies for improvement when we fed the cocktail post-challenge, and we see a significant improvement when we fed the cocktail post-challenge for butyrate absorption. So some initial pilot data suggesting that we can modulate recovery <coughs> responses using functional ingredients. Manitol flux followed very similar to what I showed you in the past, where actually imposing the model reduced movement of mannitol across, again, different to what we see in when we measure this in vivo, but we have a time delay again, and we have no effect uh, for other regions. So we're just looking at this in this case uh, uh, within the rumen. We also went and measured same gene expression and showed that in all cases, the storm diet and the storm plus diet uh, stimulated uh, increased clodin and occludin, two pretty important proteins involved in tight cell junction formation, and that occurred in the rumen. Um, and we also see tendencies, but they're not significant to occur in the genome. So again, evidence suggesting that there could be an opportunity, not a real clean model, but uh, the goal was to run a pilot experiment and see whether or not we can manipulate the response. So this is kind of our model to integrate the outcome when we look at ruminal acidosis and low feed intake. Uh, this was recently published in the Journal of Dairy Science in a, in a review article. But in response to our low feed intake challenge, we have a period of high feed intake prior to the challenge, followed by a pretty rapid decline in feed intake, but again, it's not zero. And then dependent on the challenge there, we see a delayed recovery response. And interestingly, this looks very similar to what we would see for newly received feedlot cattle. Absorptive capacity follows. And so initially we have high absorptive capacity in response to low feed intake, absorptive capacity declines, and the recovery response lags behind dry matter intake. And permeability goes the other way, where we think initially permeability is low and that's good. In response, and as an acute response to low feed intake, permeability increases. But even before the low feed intake challenge ceases, the gastrointestinal tract starts to adapt and mitigate the negative impact. And so permeability decreases and then gradually increases again. So this is our running hypothesis model. I want to be sure it's not concluded, but this is what we think is happening and how we explain the differences in results between studies that have different timelines for data collection. So my conclusions, and I hope what I've convinced you is low feed intake is an underappreciated challenge. The gastrointestinal tract responds to this challenge by altering morphology, reducing nutrient absorption, and decreasing barrier function of the gastrointestinal tract. 
And I have that question mark because I think that's really time dependent. Okay. We think these are evolutionary adaptations. Why maintain a, a large gastrointestinal tract if nutrient supply is low? The gastrointestinal tract would use too much or a disproportionate amount of energy relative to the energy consumed. What I think we still don't know is a lot of the regulatory factors that promote recovery and really what we can do to accelerate that recovery or minimize the impact uh, if you can predict the low feed intake uh, challenge for happening. With that, this is my crew. Not today, obviously, we have snow on the ground now, but I'd also like to find funders. Uh, Alma's no more. Beef Cattle Research Council has been a great supporter and uh, our federal dollars equivalent to USDA National Sciences and Engineering Research Council of Canada. So with that, I, I hope I taught you something or I, I hope you received a little bit of insight and if you have any questions or comments, I'd, I'd love to address them. You said that you used the chromium EDTA for the uh, the marker for when you put it in the movement. Can you talk about chromium being absorbed? So is that is that time frame? I'm intrigued by that Rubin methodology that you're using where you put in that solution and measure it later. How many hours is that? And are you worried about leakage during that procedure? Is it that's not long enough? We think it's not long enough probably have some leakage, I, I wouldn't deny that, but those incubations are 45 minutes to an hour and a half. So the time frame is, is pretty short to have uh, much loss. We've done recovery responses and we can recover about 97%, which I think when you're vacuuming a rumen, 97% is pretty close. Well, I was going to comment that, you know, we talked about student exchanges. I think you have to wait till we have a whole new crop of students because we're not going to want to come up that day. It's a lot of work, but uh, we typically run four animals simultaneously. So we'll have a group of seven students in the barn. Uh, you spend probably four hours together in room and fluid. Um, it's a lot of fun. It really is. It seems crazy, but you see some neat things. I don't know how many students get to palpate the esophagus. How many students are really palpating the omasolorpus? Maybe if you're omasal sampling. I think you guys that's the one who don't want to come. That's what I was kind of afraid. No, it's but, but it is a lot of fun. So I have two other questions if I may. you've got quantify you, you can quantify saliva production now based yeah. on what you're doing there. I assume you've been doing that. Yep, I'll show that in class. And then uh, second question is why couldn't you just dose chromium EDPA in different parts if you had if you had uh, Rumelade, Wadley, and sequel cannulated cattle. Now, I wouldn't get to the tissues within those parts of the tract, but at least until you rumen intestinal or large intestinal. To be honest, my, my goal, and I was trying to convince a company to do it, and they, they didn't take the bait, but I thought, what if we have different um, heavy metal complexes and we rumen protect some? So if we have rumen protected cobalt EDTA, and hopefully it would bypass the rumen, but would be released in the alumasum. Then we could look at ratios between chromium EDTA and cobalt EDTA, and we could say it's mostly foregut or mostly hindgut. We just haven't been able to develop that. Nobody's wanted to fund that. It's 
like Jim said yesterday, that's one of those things that feeds the beast, right? Uh, yeah, you would use the tool to answer important questions, but you got to develop the tool first. And so how much effort do you put into the tools? In terms of regional secretion, yeah, you can do that. But if we have a timeline response, then you have to probably have three animals as an experimental unit. One gets a ruminal infusion, one gets a duodenal infusion, maybe one gets a sequel infusion. Well, that's true. And animal to animal variability. It's a great concept. We've thought a lot about omeso. We don't, we're getting back to doing some duodenal cannulas, uh, but we've been just doing omeso dosing for quite a while and omeso sampling for a while. Uh, I don't like it, and so we're going back. Um, but it's, yeah, it's just challenging to do that uh, when we're dosing. No, you're done. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the evolutionary adaptation makes sense to me, right? If we starve animals, we nutrient restrict them. Obviously, it makes sense that the gut would become more permeable just because there's greater opportunity to capture any nutrients that might be coming through the gut, right? Question is, just naturally, we talk a lot about we measure SGLT1 and so independent, independent processes for amino acid transport. How much of those and how much do we know, i.e., how much glucose and how much of those amino acids, essential and non, leak across the gut, uh, which, which uh, you know, cause, calls into question again, not the active transporters per se, but some of the Netflux approaches that we've used and how those nutrients actually get in the portal circuit. Good question. I'm going to try to answer it first, and then I'm going to ask you another question that poses challenge with Netflux type approaches. Uh, so first of all, there's a concentration gradient, and if the concentration gradient favors absorption, passive leakage will drive absorption, and we can measure that response ex vivo as well. So that's where a lot of the debate has come on are amino acids transported across the rumen. If I put radio-labeled amino acids on the luminal side and I have tissues ex vivo, I can measure appearance of that label on the other side. There is passive permeation. That's different than uh, driven absorption. The issue that I think you're getting at, there's, there's two challenges, is if we have increased permeability, we still need to make sure that that permeability is regulated. Because it's not just amino acids or glucose that can cross. There could be histamine or LTA or other biogenic amines. And we don't necessarily want them to reach portal circulation. The other challenge with just interpreting what we have from splenic catheters is I think we underestimate arterial supply. We're looking at net flux. So it's, it's a relative balance between what came in and what came out. And Clint, if I remember back, you did some work looking at butyrate infusion. And when you infuse butyrate, butyrate into the rumen, the net portal flux of glucose became less negative. It's not because more glucose was being absorbed. If anything, it's because less glucose utilization occurred from arterial circulation. And I think too often we forget about the arterial nutrient supply, and we're just thinking about the gut as a nutrient exporting tissue. It's also a nutrient importing tissue. Yeah, so Harmon and Neil, I mean, acetate's a good example. That's one molecule we have a few measures of the bias in that portal flux relative to what's being contributed from there. 110% release. Yeah. 
relative to what's absorbed. Yeah. Yeah. Jim, can I get one more question? No, wait. Tyler has been trying to add oh, questions. Sorry. Very sorry. Wait, something <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Uh, so I understand your model with using acidosis is one of your uh, parameters as far as low feed intake goes, but how do you separate the differences in low feed intake experimentally induced by withholding feed and low feed intake caused by sickness? So like when you're talking about cattle newly weaned, getting off a truck, going through marketing stress and things like that, they have reduced feed intake a lot of times just because they're sick too. Yep. So as far as some of this gut barrier function, things like that goes, is there any way you could induce a challenge model? see if those things still happen if you challenge them with some sort of sickness you have gut barrier function changing versus low feeding take and what the interactions actually might be between those two things excellent question and it's the next place to go um, one of the things i don't mention is when you impose feed restriction to cattle in a metabolism bar they're not happy about it right? <laughs> they're standing there they're i would say there's an emotional stress absolutely on top of just the nutrient stress and transportation and illness cause different uh, signals, mm -hmm. catecholamine responses. We know there's beta-adrenergic receptors along the gastrointestinal tract. So I would say this is a stepping stone mm -hmm. of having a clean model to understand, should we even look at low feed intake? Uh, I think we have enough data to say low feed intake is a problem, to apply it to commercial situations and prove uh, commercial payments, I think that's the next step. How much time passed between the end of the feed restriction and the tissue sampling for your feed So they were not fed that, well, they received their low feed allocation that morning, and we typically kill three to four hours, depending on the study, but it's usually three or four hours post feeding time. So they ate their small quantity of feed but they're still within feed restriction. I was thinking that the, difference, the, time, the differences in epithelial restitution between rumen and the duodenum might account for your differences. Yeah, there's, there, there is a, a lag time that we can't account for. The other thing we often don't think about um, enough, I think, is are the time points appropriate? So we've selected a ruminal time point that we would think represents near maximal or approaching maximal fermentation. Maybe if we're looking for the outcomes, we should have gone prior to feeding, right? When, um, when the responses could be most dramatic. And if you look at gene expression, right? People take a single sample. I'm not sure gene expression is a chronic indicator of status. Time clocks would tell us they're not. Yeah. So it looks like you're, uh, you've got an inflammatory response. So why aren't you using any sort of anti-inflammatory factors uh, given back? I mean, antioxidants may do somewhat, but actually an anti-inflammatory might, might actually be better. Yeah, we haven't tried any NSAIDs or, and maybe we can now with oral meloxicam, that may be a way to go. The, the question is, um, you know, I think that would be useful from a fundamental science standpoint. The question is, how do we deliver that in, in industry, um, especially when they have low feed? So I think it's probably something we need to look at to understand is inflammation driving the negative response. Um, but we have a second challenge of how do we deliver that under commercial uh, situations? 
Does that make sense? Yeah, but I would say there are a lot of diseases and disorders that start with inflammation and result in some sort of liver damage. And so, um, you know, giving it sooner than later might actually enhance your result. So pre-shipping meloxicap? It's a nice concept. <laughs> Some will have to think about. Yeah. Thank you. It's been tried. Mm -hmm. yeah. I don't know about the pre or post. Pre and post. All right. Well, excellent discussion. Um, if you didn't get a chance to interact with Greg, he'll be around some. Um, probably the best time to do that would be after three o'clock today. He's getting on a plane uh, like six o'clock in the morning. Um, so he's going home uh, tomorrow. So we hope that there'll be a lot of interaction in the future. Uh, like I said, I think there's a lot of opportunity uh, for collaboration. Right now, um, I've, I've promised Greg a runza <laughs> the entire time that he's here. So we're going to go find one of those and we'll see if that uh, affects his uh, gut barrier at all. I'm sure I'm low right now. Uh, before we get back to class. So let's thank him for coming.